That is an awesome song, and that's an awesome truth. And so uh, let's go to our holy God in prayer right now. Lord, you are holy, and you are righteous, you are pure and all-powerful, and you dwell in a high and holy place. But I thank you that you also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Thank you that we get to come into your presence. We get to talk to you in prayer. We get to worship you in song. Lord, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would work in our midst. I pray that your spirit would have his way in our hearts, that we would be responsive, sensitive. Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up, and we look forward to seeing what you have for us. So take your word and work in our hearts with it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to First uh, Timothy chapter 1, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 3 through 7 today, and that's what we're going to be talking about. While you're turning there, I just wanted to point out that most of the New Testament comes to us because of problems and conflicts that arose in the church. Usually, uh, an apostle would travel through town, he would stop for a while in a given city, he would plant a church, things would be going well, he would move on, and then later on, he would hear that there were problems in the church, that false teachers had had uh, arisen or were threatening from the outside or whatever. And so the, the apostle would write back with an answer, a response to this situation, to this problem. And that's how we get to have most of our New Testament, is letters in response to problem situations in churches. And uh, this letter of First Timothy is no different than that. This is largely the reason we have it, is because of some issues that uh, Timothy was supposed to deal with in the city of Ephesus. Paul had left him there and traveled on, left Timothy there to deal with these issues and, and, um, and handle some false teachers and silence some false teachers. And so that, that was what was going on here in 1 Timothy. And, and so it's, it's uh, interesting that that's how we get most of our New Testament is from problems that have arisen in the church and conflicts that have arisen in the church and false teachers who have come in and tried to influence the church in one way or another. And so it, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, where do all these false teachers come from? You know, it seems that in every little church and all over the place, they're, they're arising. Do people set out to be false teachers, you know, when they're in the eighth grade and they're taking a job, you know, assessment or whatever? I want to be a false teacher, you know. Is there an education process to take you to that point? How do people end up being false teachers? You know, I don't recall a degree program at Moody in false teaching that you could take and, and uh, proceed. So how do they get there? How do people get there? How do they... Uh, uh, arrive at the point of being a false teacher. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but as you look throughout the New Testament and really through the Old Testament also, you'll see that there are various kinds of false teachers, various motivations that people have for bringing in some kind of false doctrine. Usually it has to do with some sort of personal gain, whether it's financial gain or whether it's power or something like that, some sort of influence that people wanted to have. And so they would come in and they realize, man, if I teach this kind of thing with this kind of you know, uh, uh, bent or whatever, I can get things to go my way. 
either I can teach something that's going to cause people to give a ton of cash because of my teaching and wow, I end up with all this money, or I can teach things that make me very popular or very special or whatever, right? Benefit myself somehow. And that's usually how that kind of stuff arises. But what I want us to look at today is uh, what are some of the, de- the decisions that lead them to go down that path? What's the turn that they took to end up down the path of being a false teacher? Now, very often in the, New Te- in the New Testament, what happens is you have this church, it's a young church, and it's growing, it's in somebody's house, or maybe it's in a few houses or whatever, and there would be some people from the outside who would want to come in and influence this church. They would be false teachers from the outside, right, who were come in, coming in to do this teaching. But here in this situation, it's a little bit different. In Ephesus, it appears that these false teachers actually had arisen from within and actually from within the leadership of the church. And I get that for, for mainly two reasons, because we read, as we read in Timothy, we can see that they've already been teaching the church. And typically in the New Testament, the role of teaching the church is reserved for the apostles or the elders. So it seems like they must have been elders because they were already teaching the church. So they're already involved in leadership. That's, that's one reason I say that. Another one is, uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul was traveling and he was passing near Ephesus. And so he called the Ephesian elders to him and they met and they talked. And there's a long discourse in there where Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders and he's talking about what kind of ministry he had and look out for this and be careful of that because I'm not going to see you again. I'm not going to see you again, right? And one of the things that he says in that speech is, and this is in um, uh, verses 28 through 30 of Acts chapter 20, he says, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. And so from among your own selves are going to spring up. This isn't attack from the outside. This is, this is rising up from within and even from within church leadership. And so Timothy's task is to stay on in Ephesus and stop this false teaching. He needs to silence it. He needs to keep it from spreading. So with all of that background in mind, you're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. As I urged you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So this is, a, this is what's going on here, and this is the task that he has given Timothy to do. So let's take a look first at the destination where these false teachers have ended up, the destination. It's the wrong destination. They end up in speculations. They end up in speculations. All right, they start with a, with a different teaching here. And it's interesting, Paul doesn't spell out, and he usually doesn't. Normally in the New Testament, we don't have it spelled out. What are the specifics of this false teaching? You know, point A, they taught such and such. And point B, they taught such and such. You kind of have to infer it from the, from the context. You kind of have to read it in from, uh, from the book as a whole. But it's, it's interesting here, as, as we look at their, at their teaching that uh, really all he says is charge them not to teach 
other doctrines, strange doctrines, different doctrines. And our translations will all translate that differently. And the reason is Paul invented a new word when he said it. It's a word that's never been accounted for in Greek before that. It's been used in Christian Greek literature since then, but it it was the first time it's ever used. And really all it meant was to teach otherly, stop them from teaching differently, teaching different stuff, something different. He doesn't specify right there, but it's different. It's out of the norm. It's unusual, right? It's, it's, it's some new kind of thing. No one had ever heard of. It's, it's bizarre. It's not in line with the apostolic teaching, right? So we don't have a whole lot of help there. It's different. Well, you would expect false teachers to teach differently. So um, we get another clue, though, when we when we look at our passage here and we see that they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Well, that doesn't help us out a ton, but really kind of what's going on there, what it seems like from this passage is that these guys were looking back at the Old Testament. It's a good thing to do, right? Looking back at the Old Testament, they were zeroing in mainly, if you, if you remember in the first five books of, of the Old Testament particularly, you'll see a lot of genealogies, a lot of so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so, and you can't pronounce 90% of the names, right? So they were looking back at the genealogies in, in the Old Testament, and they were digging into those genealogies and really focusing on those, ignoring all the teaching that goes on around it and zeroing in on the genealogies. And they were saying, oh, this guy's name means such and such. And if, if you compare that with this guy's name, it means such and such. And they were, they were doing some sort of weird speculative kind of stuff with the genealogies in the Old Testament. And that was the basis for their teaching. Right? They were building doctrine upon stuff that they observed within the genealogies. Or it says myths here. So there are traditions related to uh, who these people were and, and, and what kind of life they led and all that sort of stuff. There are all kinds of Jewish traditions about, uh, about what was going on in all these genealogies that the Bible doesn't address. The Bible just says this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy, right? But there's tradition about what went on there. And so it's these stories that are told about so-and-so. He must have been like this and he did this kind of stuff. And that's why his name is spelled this way instead of that way or whatever, right? It's speculative kind of weird stuff. And so we don't have a very clear picture of exactly what their teaching was, but we can see what they were doing was zeroing in on stuff that's either relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of the Old Testament, right? The, some specifics of the genealogies there. And then they were building a whole doctrine based upon these myths and ideas that they had, they had gleaned from there or they heard from, from the, the rabbis or, or whatever. And so they're building their whole doctrine on this stuff. It's obscure, it's built on a faulty footing, right? It's not like they read the entire Old Testament and said, here's the message of the Old Testament. They were ignoring that and zeroing in on this little piece right there. And so uh, Paul calls it endless genealogies. And I don't think he would uh, use a negative phrase like that to mean that, you know, passages in the Old Testament are endless. You know, if, you, if you've read all the way through the Bible, you get to some that you'd struggle a little more to get through. But I don't think the Apostle Paul would ever say, the genealogies are endless. I think his point is there is no end to the, to the teaching, to the fancies that these people pull out of this stuff. They can always come up with something new, even from the genealogies, right? And so this is, uh, this is the direction they've headed. This is, this is the, kind of the nature of the different teaching. And Paul wants Timothy to quiet this silly and strange teaching that these guys were doing. And one reason he gives is because it results in speculation it results 
in speculation. You see, Paul had two basic problems with the teaching that these guys were doing. First of all, it was built on very faulty footing. Right? It was built on myths. It's built on very peripheral kind of stuff, not the central teaching of the Old Testament. And the whole doctrine was built on it, right? So that's the first part is it's built on things that are, uh, you know, it's, it's on a pretty weak footing. Second problem that he has with that is that all it does is produce further speculation, more what ifs. And this what if leads to that what if. And we could speculate about this and pretty soon we're in fantasy land. And there's no, there's no solid footing under us at all. We're just imagining and thinking and comparing and, and, and our imaginations are running wild and that's all we come up with. And that's a real problem for Paul. That's a real problem for Paul. He's going to say later in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses, and uh, in, in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, he's going to say all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's supposed to have a result that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the teaching from the Bible should result in us being equipped, not just with us having an active imagination. We're to be equipped for every good work. So these false teachers are promoting instead speculations about myths and fables, whereas true biblical teaching should result in the Christian being trained in righteousness and equipped for every good work in their lives. If we, uh, we can see why this would be a problem uh, for Paul for various reasons. And one thing I wanted to point out here is that it would have been particularly offensive for Paul, and it should be particularly offensive for us, when, when a doctrine and a speculation and an idea is built on something that's just a what if, right? If you think about uh, the nature of the Bible and the nature of the New Testament, the nature of the gospel, The gospel is rooted in historical fact. When you read through the gospels and you read through the book of Acts, you read people's names. Who was the high priest when such and such happened? Who was the king when such and such happened? All this other stuff. You you have enough context and cross-reference that you've got all these people referred to. What it's doing is rooting and grounding the roots of Christianity in history so that you can look and see. If, If you have a doubt, if you have a question, I don't think such and such really happened. Well, take the, take the information that you find in the story, the, the, who was the proconsul and who was the high priest, and look back at the ancient records, even secular records, even Roman records, who, no friend of Christianity, right? Look at those records and you'll see, oh, so-and-so was in this office during this time, and this guy was in that office during this time, and this thing happened. Wow, I can date it. I can tell you exactly. And I can look over here at this historian, and he refers to the things that happened. It's rooted in history. It's not just speculation. It's not, uh, it's referred to, Christianity is referred to very often as a crutch, right? It's a crutch. And in many ways, absolutely, it's a crutch. But the point that they're making is it's not reliable. It's not real. It's imaginary. Yeah, if you want to believe that, if it makes you feel good, go ahead and believe that thing, okay? Paul's looking at this situation with these false teachers and and he's seeing these false teachers are te- telling stuff that, yeah, well, if you want to believe that, okay, but it has no grounding in history. There's no fact there. You can't back it up with anything. What are you going to build on that? It's like building on a cloud. You can't do it. Why go after this stuff? It's garbage when you've got an historical faith that's rooted in history. 
And so for Paul, this would have been extremely offensive. Extremely offensive. He says their, their teaching just results in speculation. What ifs that lead to more what ifs. It's very different from the teaching, which is God's way, which leads to living by faith, which is point C. God's way, which is by faith. So we look at our, our verse here, and it says, uh, the very end of uh, verse 4, it says um, these, uh, this teaching, uh, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, I know there are various different versions represented out here, different, different. You have the NIV, and you've got New King James, probably got King James, New American Standard. And they translate, all of them trans, translate this differently. Some say stewardship. Some say administration, some say training, some say God's work. And of course, the reason that they're struggling to translate that is because it's a difficult word that's multifaceted. It can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. And, and so what they're trying to get at is all kind of the same thing, that God wants things to be done in his household a certain way. He, he wants his work to be done his way. The Christian life is to be lived in the way that God designed it to be lived. He has a plan. It, the word is, is uh, oikonomia. It's economy. We, we, get the, we get the word economy from it. So that can mean plan. That can mean management. That can, can mean arrangement, right? It's, it's how things work together. And, uh, and this is what he's talking about. God wants his work to be done in his way. And that way is by faith. That way is by faith. Not this kind of blind speculative faith, right? Well, I guess it could be, and, you know, I'll just believe it even though I have zero evidence to say that it's really so, right? That's blind faith. We're not talking blind faith. We're talking about something that is rooted in history, is rooted in Scripture. It's not blind faith. There is evidence for it. So that, that, that brings to mind a question, what is faith? And uh, so I want to grab a prop here real quick. And I've given this illustration before. So I have a chair here, right? Now, I can look at that chair and I can, I picked it up. It's, you know, it's heavy enough to hold me. It should be, you know, relatively sturdy, right? And actually, I've not sat in this particular chair. But I picked it up. It's, it's heavy enough. I can look at it. And I can see its design. And I can see that it, that it looks like, you know, it has a place to sit. And it's got legs enough to hold me off the ground. I don't see any visible cracks I don't see any real problems with it, right? So it should hold me up. And probably everyone in, in here who can see it would agree with me, right? That that, that chair is worth, you know, it, it, it would hold me up, right? It would hold me up. So in going through that observation, very simple, am I expressing any kind of faith? Not at all, right? I'm still standing right here. I haven't, I haven't tried to sit in it, right? So I can observe it, right? I can look at it. I can intellectually believe, I mean, if I was some kind of a, you know, an engineer or something and, and understood, oh, yeah, everything's just, you know, looks right, everything's good, and tensile strength, and I don't know, whatever, I don't, that's all the engineering words I know. <laughs> so, but if I were to look at it and deduce, okay, it really is solid, it'll hold me up. But if I don't sit in it, am I expressing faith? No, not at all. I might express confidence, intellectual assent, right? But faith is essentially trust, right? 
And if I don't actually sit in the chair, I don't actually, I'm not expressing faith. I'm not expressing trust. And so it's not until I get right here and sit in the thing, right? The only thing holding me off of the floor is the four legs of this chair, right? So this is expressing faith. That's trust, right? So this is the nature of the Christian life is expressing faith, right? It's, it's trusting in God in a similar way to how I trusted in that chair. I put all of my weight on it, right? I didn't count on anything else to hold me off the floor. I even picked my feet up, right? And it held me. That's an expression of faith. And so I, I try to keep that idea in mind when I talk about faith because, you know, faith nowadays can mean all manner of things that bear no resemblance to what I just expressed. When the Bible talks about faith very often. This is what it has in mind. It has in mind this kind of trust, complete trust, dependency upon God. And so this is the way that God is designed. That's how he wants his household to be run, which is by faith. Well, that kind of raises the question, why do we need that kind of faith? What's the situation where we need to operate or why does the church operate by faith? Why is faith such an important thing? And so that that takes me back to, you know, the, the basic um, truth of the gospel, which which then will make sense of why I have to have faith, why I need faith, right? You see, when when a sinful man is measured against the holiness of God, we, we, we sang earlier about, about the holiness of God, and it's true. He is completely holy. He's completely separate from sin. He's completely set apart pursuing his, his glory. He's holy. He's completely holy, right? And so when sinful man is measured against the holiness of God, I am found completely wanting. I find that I'm not holy. I find that I'm stained, right? I, I find that, that I am very fallen. And of course, the Bible calls that sin, right? I demand to be my own king instead of submitting to him as king, right? I want to be responsible for my own self. I'm a self-made man, bootstraps and all that stuff, right? Instead of submitting to him as my creator, I want to call the shots. I want to do what I want to do instead of submitting to him and his lordship. And of course, that's called sin. And my, my life has lived that way. Fallen man, that's, that's from, from, from birth to grave. That's the way he lives. He wants to call his own shots. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's horrible, right? You know, some people really want to be good and do good things. But still, they're the ones calling the shot. They're the ones getting the glory, right? It's, it's all on them. And so they're, they're their own boss. They're their own king. And, and so the Bible calls that sin. And when we think about the holiness of an eternal God, we realize that if I, if I am stained with sin through and through, if I'm a rebel and enemy against God, that means I deserve judgment from him. And that judgment is eternal. He is a holy God. And any breach of his holiness deserves wrath. And wrath has to be given. And so here I am, the object of his wrath because of my rebellion against him, right? And so what do I do? How is this solved? It's only solved by the sinless son of God who stepped in. He's, he's completely man like me and he's completely God. He steps in and he bears the brunt of that wrath, the wrath that's coming at me. He bears that. 
He takes my penalty on himself and he pays it on the cross for me. And in exchange, when I trust in him, when I realize I got nothing before God, I have nothing that I can offer God. Jesus offered it all and I'm going to trust in his offering. When I sit in that chair, when I trust in him that way, he takes my guilt, my punishment on himself and he gives me his righteousness. So that now when God looks at me, he sees someone who's forgiven and someone who actually has the righteousness of Christ applied to his account. And so that's why faith has to happen. I can stand out here and rehearse what I just said to you and understand all the points, right? And still not be trusting, still not have faith. It's until I put my trust in him and say, Jesus, you are all that I have. I have no hope other than you, and I trust in you completely. It's not until we sit in that chair and express faith in that way that we've actually entered the household of God and become part of his family. And so Paul says, he's talking about the stewardship or the household of God, the arrangement, how God's plan works in his household, and that is by faith. It's by faith. It's not a blind faith like these guys in their speculations built on nothing. It's not blind faith, but it is an expression of faith. And I'm going to put all my trust in it. So this strange and speculative kind of teaching takes people to a place of idle speculation that is nothing like true faith. That's the wrong destination. So what's the right destination? What's the right destination? Well, it's, it's love. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal, what they're shooting at, the aim is love. And it could hardly be more different from the, from the result of this speculative kind of teaching. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. It's on the same subject. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So this is what they had in mind, and this is what they were producing, these false teachers. But if you remember from Matthew chapter 22, what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? It's to love God. What's the second? It's like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's the same message. The goal, the target is love. And so what's in contrast to, uh, to what's produced by this vain speculation, true Christianity aims at and results in true love for God and true love for one another. Love for God and love for one another. An interesting aside here, the word love occurs 14 times in the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Those are the pastoral epistles. The word love occurs in there 14 times. On 13 of those occasions, it's paired with the word faith. That's interesting. That's pretty high ratio, right? It's paired with the word faith. So what does that tell us? 
Well, it tells us that in, in Paul's mind, there's a very close connection between faith and love. They're very closely related concepts. Faith in God and love for God are very, very similar. Faith in God also necessarily involves love for others. Think of a couple passages in 1 John, right? The Apostle John is talking, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's, there's a, a connection that can't be broken there. But he's going to say later in verse 20 in that same 1 John chapter 4, he's going to say it a whole lot more strongly. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. They are extremely closely connected concepts. True biblical Christianity pursues love. It pursues love. It may not always be received as love, but it pursues love. The reason it's not always received as love is because true love in the biblical concept means that you are pursuing the good of the other person. Whether that person wants the good to be done to them or not, whether they like the good or not. For example, I remember being chastised by a, an acquaintance, a co-worker of mine who was... Um, he was from the Mormon church and he and I would discuss things a lot and uh, discuss theology and discuss all manner from family to all manner of stuff we would talk about. And I thought we had pretty good friendship and we kept coming back to the issue of the gospel and we would talk about the gospel and talk about it and talk about it. And finally he said, you know what? You are just not very loving towards me because I wouldn't agree with him on what the gospel was. And at the time I was, a, I was a very young Christian. I thought, Oh man, that's, I'd really need to be loving, right? I, I don't want to be unloving. And so I, as I thought about it, though, I realized what could have been more loving than for me to tell him the truth about his eternal destiny? The reverse, if I had withheld that truth from him, would that have been loving? No, that would have been hating. I would literally have been hating him to withhold that truth. So the the... The biblical concept, biblical Christianity is pursuing love, which is the good of the other person, doing what is good for the other person in all manner of situations. I could expound on that, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. The aim of true biblical Christianity is this kind of true biblical love. And he says it comes from within. It comes from within. The aim of our charge is love that, pursue, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I want to move quickly through this, but let's, let's make a, a contrast between the aim that Paul has, this kind of love, what it comes from, and, the, and the, the, the character traits of these false teachers. 1 Timothy 6 says the false teachers are depraved in mind. Their capacity to understand spiritual truth is ruined. It's just spoiled. They are depraved in mind. And he says, on the contrary, we are to be pure of heart, pure of heart. And this love that we're seeking flows out of a pure heart. That's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. Real love for God and man can only come from a heart that has been cleansed by the work of the gospel in your heart and by the word of God working in your heart. Love flows from a pure heart and also from a good conscience. 
also from a good conscience. Now, in the Bible, the conscience is a, it's, it's almost, uh, it's an aspect of our uh, ability to assess whether we've done moral right or wrong. It helps us to understand the morality of the decisions that we've made. Well, that was a bad decision. I can, yeah, it's, it hurts my, con- it's against my conscience, right? I've gone against my conscience, right? Or, or no, I have to follow my conscience and not do this thing because that would be wrong, right? So your conscience is, is almost like, an, like, a, like a moral organ in your body. It's, it senses uh, and, and kind of is a guide of whether something is a good thing morally to do or whether it's a bad thing morally to do. Now, the issue, the problem is that not all consciences are created equal. Some are, much, uh, are very spoiled, Right. And actually, he says of, of the false teachers here in first Timothy, chapter four, and verse two, he says that their consciences are seared. Just fried. Right. Just fried. They have fed bad information into the conscience. Your conscience doesn't create what's right or wrong. It responds to the information that you give it about what is right, right or wrong or the information that your culture, your upbringing gives it about what is right or wrong. We could raise hands and talk about dancing. And, and people who've grown up in the church in different parts of the country will have it ingrained. It's against their conscience to dance, right? That's because the information that has been put in there is telling them that that's true. So your conscience responds according to the information that's been given it from, from the teaching that you've had, right? Now, so your conscience can be good or your conscience can be bad. And he says that these, the, the conscience of these false teachers is seared. It's fried, it's just fried, and that's because they've spent uh, years feeding bad info into it, and also they've spent years just ignoring what it says anyway. I lied to that guy and kind of felt a little twinge, but, you know, it was, it was all good in the end, and I just went on. The next time, your, your conscience twinges a little bit less, and the next time it twinges a little bit less, and, and pretty soon you, it's just seared. It's hardly responsive. It's useless. That's what he says about them, but godly love like what Paul's talking about here, comes from a conscience that is good and is pure, from a conscience that's being fed truth from God's word about what really is right and what really is wrong. And so you have good, good information coming in. And at the same time, it's when we listen to our conscience, it stays good and it stays healthy. When it tells me I shouldn't do that, okay, I don't do that. And that keeps my conscience healthy. I can feed good intel into my conscience and make terrible decisions and ignore it all the time. It's still going to be fried. But if I'm responsive to it and stay sensitive to it, it remains a good conscience. It's been informed by the word of God and it becomes a useful moral guide, a useful moral guide when it's informed, when it's a good conscience, as he says here. Christian love also flows from a sincere faith. A sincere faith produces a sincere love. Hypocritical faith, a faith that says one thing and does another kind of thing, produces a hypocritical kind of love. 2 Timothy 3.8 talks about these false teachers and, and their faith. He says they have corrupt faith. Their faith is corrupted. It's got junk mixed in it. It's, it's got problems. Corrupt faith produces relational, emotional, and religious corruption. So theirs has been corrupted, maybe by their own desire for gain, right? The things they're willing to compromise to accomplish their, their larger goals. Conscience has been corrupted. But true love 
Christian love flows from a sincere faith. Christian love comes from within. That means it can't be counterfeited. It rises up from within. It can't be counterfeited. You can't look at someone else and say, his love looks like this. I'm going to take that and put that on me so that I look just like him. It can't be counterfeited. It rises from within. It can't be generated by force of will. Instead, it can only spring from a heart that has been purified by the gospel, from a conscience that has been made good by the Holy Spirit and the word of God, and a trust in God that is true and unhypocritical. What a contrast to these false teachers. And this is the source of Christian love. It comes from within. So now let's look at their, lo- their wrong turn that they took. First of all, they started by neglecting their character, by neglecting character. He says certain persons, by swerving from these, a reference to those three things we just talked about, their heart and their conscience and their faith, by swerving from focusing on these things, they've moved off into error. And so I ask myself, why in the world would they do that? Why would they switch their focus from those things that are very clearly taught in Scripture that we should pursue, and they moved over into other things? And I'm not certain this is the case, but this is my observation as I was looking at this. I was thinking about uh, the Christian life, and I was thinking about what it's like to focus on your heart and your conscience and your faith and, and work on on growing those and and focus on them and and i need to make this correction i really need to invest more in uh, whatever why would someone turn from that and turn the other way i believe it's because this inner work of the christian life is painful i think that's why anyone who's been through surgery multiple surgeries realizes you know this this next surgery that i have to take you know it's good for me but man i'm really not looking forward to it Right there's a recovery time, the surgery itself. I mean, right, you're looking, you're, but it's worth it, and so you keep doing it, and then you go back and you do it again. Some people have multiple, multiple, multiple surgeries, and they they, they have to make this. I'm sure that there's this mental thing. I'm just going to do it because it's going to be good for me in the end, and I'm going to go through this ordeal. Right. Well, what these guys have done is they've gotten to the point where they realized this is an ordeal. It's painful. I really don't want to go through that pain anymore. I really don't want to go through that pain anymore. They lose sight of the ultimate goal. They, they fixate on this pain of, of the hard work, inner work of the Christian life, and they just chuck it. They'd rather go move off in these other areas. They neglect these things. And I think that's what's going on here. I think that's, uh, that, that's what their motivation is. It's hard to face your deepest and darkest self in light of God's holiness. Read Isaiah 6. Read the Gospels. you learn who God is. And then you stop to pray. And you get distracted by sinful thoughts. And you think, man. What's the difference? There's a big difference. That's painful to make that observation. Again and again and again. The radiance of God's holiness is not flattering light. To sinful man. Right? What was, what was Isaiah's response when he stood there in the temple and he saw that whole thing and they were shouting, holy, holy, holy. Did he join right in and shout, holy, holy, holy? No, he said, woe is me. Man. This is bad news, right? Woe is me. And I think that's why they did it. 
A mark of false teachers is that they have given up the fight to grow in personal holiness and purity and character. Usually when you see some prominent Christian fall into some kind of scandal, this is why it happened. I've known people who've gone down this route. It's painful. It's painful to keep seeing yourself in light of God's holiness and doing that difficult, painful inner work. But this is a fight that we can't quit. This battle for character, for personal sanctification, is one of the central battles of the Christian life. We don't dare give it up, lest we make this same wrong turn that they made. So here's the wrong turn that these false teachers took. They began to neglect their inner character, and instead they chose to pursue fruitless discussion. They chose to pursue fruitless discussion. Instead of continuing in the hard and painful work of growing in character, it's tempting to go after interesting, stimulating, but meaningless talk. There's no danger of being confronted with your sin that way. Pointless arguing and trivial fixations can be a real smokescreen that actually conceals moral and spiritual decay and and decline. So sometimes people abandon this because it's painful, but they like the stimulating conversation. And by the way, this still sounds Christian. If If I continue in this kind of stimulating conversation using biblical terms and talking about you know, Christian type stuff, but, but ignoring this and I can enter into this and feel just fine about myself. Right now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is a place for disputation and theological argument. Anyone who's had more than a few conversations with me knows that I, I value getting the Bible right. And I value wrestling those ideas together, lest I be wrong You need to show me I'm wrong, and we need to talk about this, right? I value that. That's an important thing. Getting the Bible right is worth the effort that it takes to wrestle through difficult ideas. But what I'm saying is that there is such a thing as an unhealthy fixation on sideline topics that aren't worth the time. We can haggle about this over here. It doesn't affect my Christian life. It has zero impact on my Christian life. We can keep talking about this little minute thing that's very interesting to you and me, and we can, can, you know, what if and this, and we can have ideas and talk about this kind of stuff at the expense of our own holiness, at the expense of our own Christian life, our own faith, because we're talking about a subject matter, right? It has become an object to talk about rather than by faith. False teachers can talk and talk, especially about fruitless topics, but ultimately they lack understanding. Ultimately, they lack understanding. The natural progression if we begin to neglect our personal walk with Christ and veer off into vain and pointless discussion, is that we begin to lose spiritual understanding and discernment. Matters of the heart and of the spiritual life start to become unclear to us. We can't really understand it. It's kind of indistinct, and I'm not sure. I don't really get it. I'd be happy to talk about this thing. But, yeah, matters of the heart, don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I can make a spiritual assessment. Many have gone this route before just like these false teachers. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and railing against the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, he made this charge. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
fighting so hard over this tiny little thing, straining out this gnat. Meanwhile, in my life over here, I'm swallowing a camel. They've lost spiritual understanding because they have neglected, they've turned from these things, their faith and their conscience and their heart, which is where our relationship with God takes place. They've stopped focusing on that for one reason or another. Maybe it was just too painful. Instead, they start fiddling over here. So our aim is to be different. It's tempting for me. I'm, I'm an egghead, okay? I like ideas. I like to talk. I like to study. And and I can even get off into into being tempted to focus on little tiny sideline issues and tempted to give this up, the heart of the Christian life. That is a whole lot easier. That is a whole lot easier. And that's part of the reason why sometimes seminary is referred to as cemetery. Because you forget about this and you go off and, and talk about this all the time. It doesn't have to be the case. It doesn't have to be the case. And sometimes... Uh, these finer points are important. But if we have ditched this because it's painful and gone after this because it's intellectually stimulating and I can still sound good at church, we have a real issue. We have a real problem. Our aim is Christian love, which comes from inside. It springs from a right heart and a right conscience and a right faith. And these are all things that God works within us as we continue to walk with him walk with him let's pray lord help us all to remain engaged with you in our faith and our conscience and in our heart May we not disconnect because we don't come off well when we're compared to your holiness. May we not fixate so much on our feeling of lostness or whatever it is we have that we turn away from pursuing you. Lord, all these things, these areas, these are areas you work. You work in our faith. You strengthen our faith. You purify our conscience. You purify our heart. Lord, these are things that you do in our lives. Help us not to be tempted to unplug from that and pursue fruitless, pointless, idle, vain chatter. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts, that you would do your work in our in our inner beings. I pray that even this week, we would re-engage if we have disengaged that we would make contact with you every day, that we would pursue you in those ways and, and, and open ourselves up to let you work in our lives by your word, by your spirit. Work in our hearts, we pray, and produce this kind of Christian love. It's our aim too. Produce this kind of love for one another, for you, and for people around us who don't yet know you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.